Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. Our guest today has had an extraordinary career so far, excelling in music, creating film scores and writing and indeed appearing in some of the most iconic television of recent UK TV history. All of that whilst also qualifying as an accountant. He grew up in Kent, his parents not long emigrated from India, being regularly attacked by supporters of the National Front, but found his love of music saved him. After meeting fellow future media personality Sanjeev Baskar and teaming up to create a comedy show, his star very quickly rose through not just comedy on radio and then TV, but also in music and making film scores and worked with just about every important figure in modern day music. From the moment he first went to India, age eight, a trip that he describes as having turned life into Technicolor. His love of travel, culture and worldwide music have fed not just his creative output, but also the political fire that sees him speaking out against injustice and inequality. His background, work, music, culture and passions have, in his own words, enabled him to truly feel like a citizen of the world. Let's give Nitin Sawney a proper Big Travel Podcast introduction. Nitin Sawney's Kent childhood included regular attacks by racists, but he threw himself into music, joining school friend James Taylor's band. Flying to India via Kabul, aged eight, he found himself a child mascot, riding horseback through the streets. He felt liberated by Liverpool at university. He's recorded with musicians in Australia, Brazil, South Africa, Spain, interviewed Nelson Mandela at his home in Johannesburg, discussing everything from the connection between flamenco and Rajasthani gypsies, working with Gary Lineker and refugees on his new album, being held at security in LA before being sent to hospital, and so much more. It's Nitin Sawney. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Mm, yeah, yeah, no pleasure. It's a pleasure. I feel like I'm having a an immersion into Indian, my Indian side, because I'm half Indian as well, half Indian Fijian oh. um, this week, because last night I was on stage at the Indian High Commission interviewing Bethany Hughes, who I think is oh, yeah, who I know. a friend of yours. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. From years ago, from uh, Waterman's Arts Centre when she used to book Sanjay and I for comedy shows, comedy oh, nights. Oh, really? Mad. Is yeah, that yeah. where it was from? Yeah, yeah, a long, long time ago. Yeah. Well, she's doing so well at the moment, and I was yeah, interviewing I mean, her about her Channel 4 show, The Treasures of India. Yeah, yeah, wow. she's it's great. I mean, yeah, it's great. She's she's very knowledgeable and very, yeah, really good at what she does. 
Uh, I feel like, yeah, so we were immersed in in that sort of culture, which was wonderful. Everyone's wearing saris and we had like a little drinks reception with sort of Indian tapas and everything afterwards. That's um, great. It, it got me thinking, actually, as to what sort of immigrants there are out there. My dad, who came from his, uh, he's 100% Indian blood, but he was a, a product of indentured labour. So he was, a, a, his grandparents came to Fiji, went to Fiji from India under British rule, which was essentially, I'm sure you know all about it, but essentially sort of a, a big abuse of human rights and, you know, sort of akin to slave labour with a tiny bit of money sort of thrown in. But then when he came, he was third generation, when he came to England in the 60s, he ditched it all, you know. So I have no Indian culture, whatever. I'm sort of learning, right. to, you know, as I, as I got older, I learned to embrace it more. Flamenco is partially Indian culture. It is. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I found that out through my brother, but we grew like a big coincidence, but my, well, not coincidence. My dad took us to live in Spain um, mm. because he needed somewhere warm and actually warm and more liberal. When we went in the, in the eighties, we were living in a, the North of England, which was very a difficult place to be for him as an immigrant at the time. But I'm wittering on about this because it got me thinking that um, there's different types of immigrants who come to this country. And my dad was one of the ones that just forgot it all. You know, I don't know any Hindi. I don't didn't have any culture. And actually, as a child, I was quite glad of that. I'm embarrassed to admit because I didn't want to stand out. You know, I wanted to be like all my little white friends and just be one of them. But it sounds bringing this around to you because this is about you rather than me. It sounds like you had the the opposite. You were one of the born of immigrant families. Your family just came to uh, to Rochester, is it? From uh, well, originally they they lived in London for a year before they came down to Rochester. Yeah, and uh, it sounds to me like they they sort of they kept that cultural involvement, and I think uh, it, it's a wonderful thing that they did. But growing up for you in in the southeast, it, it, there might have been some challenges. Yeah, there were. I mean, it was. Um... Chatham, I think, was at the time was the headquarters of the National Front during the during the seventies. I mean, it was kind of it was an aggressive place for um, a lot of lunatic skinheads and and kind of you know Nazi type idiots. But I mean, yeah, it was kind of um, who were who were pretty violent around our area. But even the kids, you know, where a lot of the kids where I went to school were really influenced by that. A lot of their parents were National Front members and also. I had teachers who were National Front members. You know, it was a it was a really horrible experience in that way. Having said that, you know, there were lots of good times as well. But um, yeah, it was kind of, and I I kind of was in bands and had a good time with a lot of friends. But it was um, yeah, it was it was difficult. It was a difficult time. Was it? Did you feel lucky to have that musical involvement that you actually uh, found something that was cool I guess and allowed you to sort of you know integrate with a uh, with a group of people in that sense if that makes sense yeah yeah I think um I think being in bands actually was 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 a good thing because um you know I mean, it kind of gave you gave you a bit more um uh social kind of gravitas I guess you know in 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 school so I mean you know actually playing instruments or being in in groups um, was a was a cool thing to do so from that point of view uh everything got better from that time but I, I didn't really think of it that way it was more you know I'd always been a musician and so um I was lucky that I had that but um you know it was uh, it, I think more than anything really music was help what helped me just kind of get past a lot of racist attacks and violence that I kind of saw and experienced. Were you, were you physically attacked? 
Oh, a lot. Yeah, yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so certainly between 11 and 13 years old, I was, I was attacked pretty much every day. Yeah. In, in what sort of form? That sounds absolutely hideous. About eight kids would kind of wait for me, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty full on. I mean, but having said that, it was a long time ago and I've, I've kind of been in therapy over the last 10 years and kind of, you know, there were, there were, yeah, there were certain kids who would wait for me, you know, um, outside the classroom and stuff like that. And, you know, it was, it was just relentless. And I think it's because there wasn't anyone else, you know, and the thing is, if you're, if you're Asian and there's only white people around you, you stand out and kids who are aggressive at that age are looking for uh, someone to, you know, pick on because they look different or they act differently. So, so from that point of view, it was just kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it went on for quite a long time, but um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I suppose it kind of um, um, motivated me to kind of, you know, play more music and just kind of and do, do things, um, really to actually accentuate my identity rather than hide it. So I kind of, you know, I was always, when I'd been, although I was a classically trained pianist, I mean, in Western classical music and, and I got into jazz and other things and I got into flamenco young, um, I kind of found myself playing a lot of Indian classical rags in the music rooms, uh, despite the fact that I got thrown out for doing that um, by by a music teacher who was a member of National Front. Um you know, it's kind of, uh, it was, it was one of the things that I just enjoyed just trying to find ways into understanding my heritage. I will sort of take it. Well, to me, it is all about travel. And I think I've spent a lot of time in Southeast London and Kent, and it's one of those, um, I realised that Kent is a place of travel to many people, Garden of England, Mm. but it's one of those places of huge contrast where you've got a lot of uh, wealthy people in said garden of England but also as the port into this country and maybe that's connected to the the pockets of the the National Front of course uh, Britain first Nigel Farage Mm. you know those people are are there and and still there so it is it's a very um, interesting sort of contrasting place like that and I think a lot of people don't sort of realize they see it as this pretty garden of England. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, you know, having said that, it it was it was a beautiful place to grow up. I, I enjoyed a lot of things about growing up in Rochester, and I don't think I'd change it. I mean, I would change certain aspects of what happened, but um, but I think uh, you know, in a way, a lot of a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, ultimately, you're the sum product of your experiences, and so you know, you take the good with the bad, or the bad with the good, wrong. So it was kind of um, it was beautiful. We lived by the river. You know, there was a castle, a cathedral. It's you know near the near the bridge, um, and it was yeah, it was a lovely experience. Just kind of walking around there, running there, doing stuff. You know, having friends there. That was great. You know, I, I really enjoyed that going you know as I got older going into country pubs in that area so yeah I mean there was a lot of great stuff that I enjoyed and and kind of you know it mellowed out over time it was it was kind of at the heyday of the National Front it was at its worst so that was when I was around kind of between 11 and and, uh, 13 yeah because that would have been I think it got particularly bad between 1975 to yeah 77 kind of thing from a subculture point of view, um, you also don't know who's a racist skinhead and who's just a, an aesthetic skinhead to you in that times. And I, I remember, you know, as a small child being very afraid of anyone with a with a, a shaven head. 
because of that you know yeah yeah and and the thing is what what a lot of people don't realize when you know it's it's interesting say for example with the proms at, at the royal Albert hall a lot of people i mean a lot of people don't understand why certain asians and so on have an issue with the with the union jack and it's because we'd see skinheads when we were young all wearing the union jack about you know desperate to kind of kick your head in or, or to attack you and so we had an association of the union jack with that um whereas a lot of you know white people don't really have that association as much because they didn't they didn't have that confrontation constantly. So um, so when you do see the proms and you see people waving Union Jacks, I mean, the controversy today is that a whole load of um, Brexiters are kind of upset that people were waving the Union, the European Union flags um, at the Royal Albert Hall. So I've just invited people to bring their own uh, EU flags and wave them at the Royal Albert Hall at my gig. I love it. I love it. No, you're right. It's about association, isn't it? And you get the older generation who say, oh, well, I don't know why you can't use uh you know words that have changed you know colored or whatever it's actually it doesn't the why it doesn't really matter it's just that if it's offensive to some people and upsetting and triggering and there's been it's been misappropriated by yeah. one group of people then let's just let's just avoid it you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely anyway i realized that we've been stuck on kent for a while but when you were younger did you travel to delhi did they take you home as it were <laughs> Yeah, I travelled to to India and, and went to even Jaipur and uh, to uh, Chandigarh and Nabhar, um, you know, around the Punjab area, Rajasthan, you know, around those kinds of areas, Jalanda as well. Um, the Punjab um, was the focus of where we travelled, and um, and that was really quite idyllic. So I was about eight years old when I first went to India, and that was the first time I'd ever been abroad. So I was um, I was blown away by First of all, the whole idea of traveling on a plane. I remember just being absolutely astounded at looking out of a window and seeing that we were that high up. But also, um, you know, the things, odd things like, um, I remember the taste of the food on that plane. You know, it was, it was, um, it was very special. And I remember we stopped off in Kabul on the way to India. Uh, and, and it was kind of, uh, it was the first time I'd seen people with machine guns. You know, there were there were security people carrying machine guns, and we were left on the tarmac for quite a while. On uh, at one point, where uh, I thought my head was on fire. It was quite. It was so hot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I kind of, when I got to India, I was blown away by everything. I mean, it was. Um, I remember particularly because I was kind of um, asleep in the back of the car at one point, and I. I remember kind of looking up and seeing these beautiful trees and everything seemed so uh, clear in the sky. It was stunning. And, um, you know, you could really see the stars and there was something quite magical about it. And I hadn't really seen that before. I'd always had this kind of um, uh, this kind of um, childish wonderment at this kind of... Uh, this um, Taj Mahal lamp that my mum and dad had. And that was my only kind of real reference for what India was. It was kind of a emblematic kind of, you know, um, way of thinking about India or, or reflecting on what India was. So I kind of would always just look at that and always dream about going there. So when I was actually there and um, I, I ended up at my uncle's wedding in Nabha and uh, I was uh, what's known as a Savala, which is like a, a child mascot kind of thing. So I was kind of, um, I was on, um, yeah, I was on a horse with him 
uh, kind of riding through with with my uncle as the groom, riding through uh, the, the streets of Navha with uh, with a brass band playing When the Saints Go Marching In out of tune around me, which was the weirdest experience ever. And I kind of burst into tears because I couldn't deal with how out of tune they were playing. And so they must have thought I was the most precocious little brat. But the thing was, um, I kind of also remember just thinking how kind everyone was and being astonished by so many things about uh, how people could live in such a simple way um, so elegantly. Um, I was uh, I was just amazed by so much about uh, about India. Yeah, incredible. It's a culture shock at the best of times, isn't it, India, let alone when you're eight years old and you're stopping in Kabul and there's yeah. machine guns and then you're on the back of a horse and, you know, yeah. it's a feast of... No, uh, it's in front of the horse. On the front of the horse, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, if you're, it's a feast of of scents and sights and noise and it was overwhelming my, heat what was what was interesting was my mum said to me at the time that I'd adapted really well and quickly I think it's because I I, I was so excited all the time and I, I think I found everything really interesting and I was really amazed by the rhythms that I'd hear in the streets as well people playing dolok or or um or um or even the doll or tabla or whatever, or, you know, people playing Shanae or Bansuri in places. And I was kind of amazed by all of this kind of rich palette of sound and as well as colours and smells and everything. You know, it was kind of, a, you know, the the, the food, um, everything just felt, like you said, it was a, an assault on the senses, but in a, in a really good way. I thought it was quite, it felt like I'd been living in a black and white world. You know, uh, and and suddenly somebody switched the light on and introduced me to colour. So you went to university in Liverpool. Was that a a similar black and white to a colourful world experience? I mean, I love Liverpool. I'm from the Wirral, and my dad moved to Liverpool when he in the sixties when he came over from um, Fiji and and got involved in the whole scene there with the Beatles. You know, who were playing in the in the cavern at at that point. And you know, it's just you know, as a musician, you know, did you? Did you feel that that sense that I love about not everyone gets this about Liverpool, but if you get Liverpool, you know, it is a really wonderful place. Yeah, there were some really good bands there as well. And I used to play with some of the jazz bands there. I, I kind of uh, would go out and play a few odd gigs with people. And um, yeah, I was um, I mean, I was studying law, but I wasn't really studying law. I was kind of more more interested in, in the scene out there. And uh, and, you know, I saw a lot of bands play there. I remember seeing Curtis Mayfield come to uh Liverpool University and play there, which was fantastic. That was an incredible gig. Um, one of the best bands live I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, just astonished by the fact that I suddenly had this newfound freedom and that I was talking to a lot of people who were very accepting of me as a person without kind of judging me on the basis of my color or, or, or cultural heritage. So it was kind of, I wasn't used to that, to be honest. I mean, I remember having a conversation even in the sixth form with someone I knew and thought of as a friend um, who actually said, uh, well, everyone's a bit racist. You have to just accept that. And I, I remember thinking, well, m- maybe he knows. Maybe I just, I'm just ignorant. I, you know, so that's what I mean. At that age, it was, it was, in, you know, right up to the age of 18. I was kind of um, just just brought up with this idea that, that racism was normalised. 
So I guess when I um, when I got to university and people were telling me how they'd studied, you know, at, at school, how they'd studied um, Sikhism or they'd studied other uh, forms of religion, where where at my school, which is a grammar school in Rochester, um, all we'd studied really was Christianity, and we it was a very strict diet of Christianity from assembly to everything else. I kind of was amazed that you know a white person was sitting there and telling me about. You know, stuff that I didn't know about um, other cultures and particularly Hinduism and Sikhism. Well, not Hinduism so much, but Sikhism, yeah. I, I'm listening to you now. I kind of, you know, I'm a mum of two young boys and um, I kind of I kind of wish that any young person who's going through, you know, what you went through at school could actually hear you speak and know that, the, you know, that it's going to be okay when you're, you know, immersed in that horribleness. It, it must be awful. Well, it's, I mean, one, one thing I would say, I mean, you know, it's, it's also, this is why I feel strongly, so strongly and passionately about politics all the time, because the government has a bloody responsibility to children to, to not act like, uh, role models for idiot bullies at school. And the problem is this government doesn't get that. And, um, and they, they constantly, you know, Suella Breverman and Priti Patel and Sajid Javid, you know, the, all the home sec- uh, secretaries of this Tory government have just been constantly pushing this agenda of demonising or dehumanising people um, on the basis of where they're from um, to the point where they try to force people to accept that it's normal. And it's absolutely disgusting. It's so disgusting to me because that is just... That is just kind of playground fodder for bullies. They they use that. They 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 absorb it at a subliminal level, and and it's used to uh, to fuel a lot of uh, a lot of targeting of people on the basis of difference. And you the, you're absolutely right. And um, it, it's the you know the three that you mentioned. You know, coming from immigrant families themselves. Mm. You know, the, mm. any a racist could go. Well, look, we've got these guys in the government, and they're saying this. It kind of almost makes it worse. Yeah, it does, of course. And that's the thing. You know, it's kind of it's um, it's I I said to someone recently that it was it's very carefully placed, inviting window window dressing for a shop that sells right wing paraphernalia. You know, it's kind of. It's a trickery, you know. It's it's a, it's an illusion that's that's created to actually um, add credibility to a government that has zero credibility. Mm, I, I only I can absolutely see where your you know political that, that sort of sense of of uh, fighting injustice and unfairness comes from. Um, so you're at so you're at Liverpool and you met Sanjeev Baskar there, uh, which is I the I didn't meet him there. Oh, you I didn't. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I met Terrible him journalism. at the um, uh, University of Hertfordshire, which is which at the time was Hatfield Polytechnic. So because um, I, I studied accountancy there afterwards, which I was doing a foundation course in accountancy and he was doing a business studies degree. So we kind of met there and then we were doing um, we ended up doing a comedy act even there, which at the time was called the Bargy Boys. <laughs> and, then, and then later on, we uh, we turned it into the Secret Asians. But it was kind of um, so that's that was um that was how we met and we we got on really well. But um, but I mean, at school, I'd gone to school with uh, James Taylor from the James Taylor Quartet. And I used to play, uh, I, I ended up playing in his band as well, which was cool. Yeah, I mean, the, these are really, you know, I, I don't know whether, you know, what comes first, creative people attract other creative people. You, but you've all ended up in, incredibly successful. Yeah, it's kind of weird, actually. I mean, you know, Sanj and I have had very parallel 
careers and lives. I mean, we, we're still very good friends, and and it can, you know, it's quite quite odd. You know, he got a he got a uh, an OBE, I got a CB. We kind of like also have um, you know met lots of lots of people that we idolized when we were younger uh, through but through totally diff- different paths and uh, you know we we've even ended up working with the same people and knowing the same people um just by coincidence you know Andy Circus happens to be a very good friend of both of us independently um but there's a lot of that you know that's, that's happened over time where we we found i mean even at college and and uh, or rather university we had a kind of um you know a bond uh, that was quite bizarre because we'd have lots of coincidences. I mean, I do have a lot of coincidences anyway with lots of people and with lots of things, but um, but I do I did experience them a lot with him. I mean, to the point where I remember we were in a in a music room one time and um, at university, and uh, and I played one note on the piano, um, which is a middle C, and we both I think it was in 1986. I think we both looked at each other and said. Uh, it must have been before that name, maybe 84. We both said film 84 at the same time from one note. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or another time when somebody walked into uh, the student union bar and they, they actually walked a little bit robotically. And we both looked at each other and said, Gort. Now, Gort was a robot. Now there's been a film since made about it um, or, or, or a, a revision of that film, another version of that film since. But at that time, hardly anyone knew about this film called The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was an old black and white movie with a robot called Gort. <laughs> but it was bizarre that both of us looked at this person and knew that he, each other would actually recognise that he looked like a robot called Gort from a film, a black and white old film called The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's so wonderful when you get when you get a friend that like you that. just you just like get each other. It, mm. It's uh, it's wonderful, you know, for a friendship and a working uh, relationship as well. It was um, it was quite mad, yeah. It's cool. I'm, I'm thinking about when you when you said you've met some very inspirational people and connecting this to travel, but it might be a little bit too much of a jump forward. But um, about the Mandela interview in Johannesburg, his house, which is sounds incredible. But how yeah. how did you get from from that point where there you are studying accountancy? You you started the uh, the Secret Asians that became a radio show, I think, and then it became goodness gracious me on TV. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. So so it was kind of so yeah. I mean, it was. Um, yeah, so that that was great. But I mean, I guess, um, well, before that, in 1993, I'd already released an album called Spirit Dance. And then in 94, I released Migration. So I'd already released Migration when it went to TV. And I was it was kind of a parallel thing. But I was also scoring films, too, because I'd already done one for the BBC called Flight. So everything was kind of blossoming in terms of lots of different options I had as kind of my career path in a way and and so the comedy thing was doing really well but I kind of and I enjoyed doing it it was really good fun but I think it got to a point where I just thought look I need to make a choice because actually um uh Warner Music um Rob Dickens for, at the time had asked me uh if I wanted to um produce an artist called Amar at the time and um so I thought look I can I can't do both I've just only got so many hours in the day so I, I need to just really devote myself to to working on her album and I pulled out the TV series but not before I did the well-known let's go for an English sketch where I yeah I did a Mooney and uh and Bert but I mean, <laughs> said a few things I mean it but, is but, like yeah. the best sketch ever it's so funny it's the, <laughs> well, blandest, it's the blandest thing it's the bland, what's the blandest thing you've got it's very, very exactly funny. well it was me yeah it was me saying uh uh what was it 24 
24 plates of chips. I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but no, it's quite. Uh, what was really funny similar. about that was was being in a was being in a Chinese restaurant where some people actually re- reenacted that whole sketch, n- not knowing that I was on the next table. Uh, oh. listening to them which I found really funny because they were actually doing my part someone was actually being me in the sketch and they all knew it really well I was like wow that's quite amazing did you go over and say <laughs> hi guys it's me and I go what? no 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 <laughs> I just found it really funny uh that sounds amazing uh, to, to, were your parents uh disappointing that disappointed that you didn't become an accountant <laughs> no no well I did I qualified as well but oh I, you did I didn't, no, well done. Yeah, I you've done but, I, but I didn't I didn't actually well I was a financial controller of a hotel at one point which was quite mad but I um I kind of yeah I left it um to to join James's band and, and then never looked never looked back really I mean I I think I well my mum and dad had said well well why don't you take a year and see how it goes and if it doesn't work out, then maybe you should go back to the county. I said, okay, that's fair enough. So I did, and I just needed off. to go back. Yeah, it was, at it least was you're really good at doing your own tax returns, right? <laughs> I don't do those. I don't do, that. <laughs> and I don't ever think about accountancy anymore. Thankfully, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll maybe kind of I can understand things. I mean, I'm on boards like I'm the chair of the PRS Foundation, and I'm yep. on on board of Complicity, a theatre company, and so on. I'm on lots of boards. But I, um, which help, it's helpful to understand financial statements and so on. But I'm, and that's great to to help with charities and to help uh, young talent uh, that's emerging as well. But I, th- I think ultimately my main interest is in um, is is always in music. Yeah. Uh, from a uh, a travel point of view, I'm just I was just about to say about when did things start to take off, but I didn't do that on purpose, and I can't believe I've never used that sort of terrible aeroplane. Analogy before, uh, but when the, when did you start to you know to travel through work? I well, I, I know yeah. through my research that you recorded a, a that album. Anyway, yeah, you, prophecy. You tell it, you tell it. Yeah. yeah, well, that was the thing. So I guess I guess you know as I'm saying, I mean, like things got. So I decided to focus more on music, you know, completely, and then uh, and then obviously the the next album really because I did displacing the Pre- priest was the last one I did while I was also working. Goodness gracious me! And then the very next album was. Beyond Skin and uh, Beyond Skin took off a lot. Um, it, you know, it kind of sold a lot of records. It was nominated for Mercury Prize and so on. So that was a really good time because suddenly a lot of record companies were chasing me. And uh, then I signed to V2, um, which was Branson's second label. And uh, and then they said, uh, what would you like to do for your album? And I said, well, I'd love to, you know, with Beyond Skin, it was made in a bedroom. But, you know, for this album, I'd like to actually do the opposite. I'd like to go out in the world and, and see things and meet people and, and kind of make an album that's that's really um, about an experience. Um, so it was kind of uh, so it was actually from that point that I then went to lots of different countries like Brazil and India and South Africa, and, you know, um, and Spain, and lo- lots of places where I kind of had different experiences and, and uh, places that I was really interested in from the point of view of music, but also kind of discovering, um, you know, a lot about those places. So, um, you know, I, I kind of found, uh, you know, that I I just read Long Walk to Freedom. I literally finished the last page of the book, Long Walk to Freedom, in Nelson Mandela's garden, and then literally I finished the last page and walked in to see Nelson Mandela. Um, 
and I knew so much about him because I, it was all fresh in my head because I just finished his biography, his autobiography. So I, I knew a lot about how he thought and how he articulated himself and so on. And he didn't disappoint. I mean, it was amazing, absolutely amazing and very uh, elegant and very um, had a real gravitas to him. He was, um, I guess, I mean, what was interesting was that he was very funny. Um, he had a really good sense of humour. And then he switched as soon as, I switched on my DAP machine to record him. He changed to become quite statesmanlike. And so a lot of the answers were very formal and officious, but, but also really heartfelt and really um, fantastic answers. Um, but the most incredible thing was when, I think I've said this a few times um, in interviews, where where his um, his assistant came in, and he was, they called him Madiba and said, uh, Madiba, the uh, president's on the phone. Uh, he wants to speak to you. And he turned around to me and said, how many more questions have you got? And I've got a recording of this as well. And I said, um, I don't know, two or three. And he said, um, okay, could you ask him to call me back in 10 minutes? And that was amazing because that, that for me, I, I, I was really moved by that actually, because first of all, I kind of found it almost amusing, but also, uh, mind blowing because it was it it struck me that his um, speech at Riviona where he said he stood for the struggle of all people against uh, oppression not just black south africans that he really had a sense of being an egalitarian in the truest sense of the word that struck me very powerfully in that moment because i was you know i was literally i realized i was sitting in front of somebody who was the real deal and um i'm quite cynical about politicians uh, and I don't think much of them. Uh, the most politicians that I can see seem to be after power rather than uh, rather than uh, fairness or thinking, you know, about about justice. Um, but he was he was somebody who didn't, and you could see that from the fact that he also, you know, gave up his presidency soon after he got it. He's he's probably one of i mean in, in terms of anyone i can think of i don't can't think of anyone who saw so much of oppression and power in one single lifetime i mean he went from being from being in in prison in solitary confinement you know for 19 years and 27 years in jail and then you know to being president of the country that that had jailed him you know so it's just an incredible it's an incredible journey that he went on and I, I guess I mean I had an amazing experience going to places like Australia during that trip as well meeting Aboriginal Australians um, Indigenous people who were incredibly welcoming and very enlightening and enlightened um, as people and a lot of my uh, travels during that time were made with the question in my mind of, of what development is of the word development because I guess people say we live in the developed world and we look at development in terms of construction and developments and buildings and technology and so on. Um, but what was interesting was um, was meeting people like Mantawai Yunipingu, um, who was um, an Aboriginal elder, who was from the band Yothi Yindi, and he was, um, he was also um, uh, a tribal elder in Arnhem Land. I remember talking to him about the idea of colonization of the mind, uh, which he talks about on that album. And um, and he was he was kind of very articulate in talking about what he thought development meant. Um, you know, that it was about people developing uh developing their minds and developing their um their 
balance with nature and with themselves. And, and I think that that's what true development is, um, you know, as as people. And to, to have that uh, communication of music, you know, you don't even need to speak the same language. And we mm. talked a little bit at the beginning about the um, on, on that same trip, you you went to Spain to uh, explore flamenco. But we talked a little bit about the connection between Indian music and flamenco, which I guess mm. unless you're a musician and are involved in that world and I'm involved through my brother, you know, people don't know about. And also the, the food, you know, about mm. uh, I think it's correct to say. Uh, that chilies came from Portugal to India, you know, rather yeah. than the the other way around, and pasta yeah. from you know China to uh, Italy and China and and that sort of thing. But to communicate, to have that form of communication and that love of of, of mu- music, it's a, a wonderful unifier, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one of the best ways to actually look at um, look at understanding the connections between India and Spain in terms of the flamenco journey. Or the 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 journey of those gypsies of the room. So it's kind of like you, if you if you look at the Rajasthani gypsies, um, they. Uh, so the film there's a film Lacha Drom. So it's by it's by Tony Gatliff from 1993, um, and it's it, it charts that whole journey um, of gypsies pick up the Moorish traditions whilst on their route to uh, Spain, and kind of. Um, you know, kind of also shows the early castanets, um, the Rajasthani gypsies in the deserts playing those, um, and also the early forms of dance, flamenco dance, which actually, you know, that you can even see similarities in the in the footwork of Kathak dancers. You know, it's it's really interesting when you see uh, how flamenco and Kathak uh, Indian folk music actually have a lot of a lot of similarities. So it's kind of, I mean, for example, in in Flamenco, you have the Buleria, um, which yeah. is in 12 beat cycles, or you'll have Soliar. And so a lot of it's in 12. You have uh, in India, you have a 12 beat cycle called Ekdal. It's not usual to have extended time cycles in the West. So it's kind of, you know, these things are kind of, you can see where these things originate. Um, you know, I mean, uh, with a, with a Buleria pattern, it's kind of like in triplets. Um, with, uh, with Indian classical music, it's, um, uh, it's kind of spoken as a decker, so it's kind of it's spoken as a basis, is almost like a poetic basis to how it works. So it's din din na That's a twelve beat cycle. Whereas in you know you with with the buleria, it's kind of a different, it's a different feel. But I've seen you know what was wonderful was seeing double players play. You know because I've put double players who are classically trained with flamenco guitarists and it's amazing how they immediately communicate and can can bounce off each other you know it's, when it's you have... funny you should say that my my i come my family in fiji are all professional tablet players or my oh, right. uh my cousins okay. and when my brother went over there for the first time they all were just jamming my brother on flamenco guitar oh, and oh. these guys on the tableau and it worked amazing there you go. There you go, in fact, yeah. we we grew up so we grew up in Andalusia and um, with an Indian Fijian dad and an English mum, mm. and mm. one of the gypsies were all around us. In fact, they were very fierce and they were very mm. um, really stood out, very Moorish, you know, very dark, uh, prominent noses, hats. Mm. You know, they walked through mm. the, the town and everyone would be like, you know, it was almost like coming into a, the 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 guy with the guns walking into the western town. You know, it was like really mm. a bit hushed. And one of my earliest memories of seeing them um, was we were in a, a party at a, a stables in the middle of the countryside, a venta, mm. they call it. 
And uh, me and my friend sort of sneaked off next to the river in the dark. And we saw this uh, big fire in the distance with people playing and the, the music. And it was a gypsy mm. party, basically, with the flamenco and the guitars and the, mm. the singing and the clapping and the offbeat clapping. And it was just like, you know, it gives me shivers even thinking about it. And I was only maybe eight or nine years old. And and then later on, my brother became involved. With the, he's got a lot of very gypsy friends. And actually, it's, um, you know, he will say that it's not easy to get in with these people you know you have to like take your time be accepted have the right mm-hmm. introductions and and that sort of thing but he he knows them very well now and they mm-hmm. you know they class him a, as a brother um so on that on that trip to spain you know that initial trip to the flamenco the trip what what happens what what did you do there oh well i i worked with uh, pepe habituela a little bit and kind of got to know him i well, i knew him um a bit before i'd kind of worked with him on another Thing. I mean, Pepe Abituello was uh, what from. I mean, one of they're one of the foremost flamenco families in Spain, and uh, he was he was based in Madrid. And his son is uh, Jose Miguel Carmona from uh, Petama. Um, and you know, I kind of I knew. Uh, I mean, you know, since then I've worked with a lot of flamenco bands like Ojos de Brujo, like flamenco hip hop, and all that stuff. So I kind of loved all of that. But I think it's uh, with. Pepe, it was amazing to see how skillful, because, I mean, I was a huge fan of particularly, obviously, Pekka de Luthia and uh, later Tomatito and all these brilliant players. But it was um, it was amazing to see uh, how elegant a player he was, because, I mean, you talk about Andalusia and it's kind of, um, you know, if you think about, um, say, Segovia, um, Segovia actually he said at one point that he wanted to take the guitar away from the noisy hands of flamenco guitarists. And it's kind of like, because so, he hated he hated all of that tapping and all of the kind of power that they get. He he had a much more kind of a different approach. And I, I mean, I love classical guitar as well, but it's kind of, it's a very different approach looking at the instrument more in an orchestral way and looking at different tone tonality. Pepe had all of that. He had all of that kind of classical finesse as well as that fire that Paco had and the speed and the technique. And, um, you know, he'd grown up in the same way. I mean, Paco de Luthier had um, had actually been taken out of school by his father because his father was determined from when Paco de Luthier was a ver- very small, when he was three or four, that he would be the greatest guitarist in the world. That was his ambition. I mean, he he succeeded. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. So, I mean, you know, it's it's amazing when you when you meet people at that level who was so committed. I mean, at one point, Pepe, um, you know, he kind of, uh, we were jamming and he said, uh, he said, uh, he looked at me uh, when, when we, I mean, this is from a guy who would practice like 14, 15 hours a day, every day and had done since he was a kid. <laughs> you know, that's all he lived and breathed was guitar. So at one point I'm playing with him and I'm aware that he's like unreal in terms of what he could do. And he looked at me, he said, um, he said, very good, Nitin, very good. You need to practice more. <laughs> it's kind of like, so it's like, I'm not going to practice 15 hours a day. It's just not going to happen. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, um, but we got on really well and, uh, it was lovely. And yeah, I had, I had a fantastic time in Spain. Um, you know, and I always have done whenever I've gone over. And also on that trip, you, uh, made, I think what was your first trip to Brazil to Rio? Yeah, which was great. And I, I hung out with Sting over there, which was wonderful, and his family, who were amazing. Um, but also, uh, I was, uh, he took me to the Mangueira Samba School, uh, which was incredible, um, and to the favelas. And, you know, it was, it was 
pretty good being around Sting because he knew a lot of people. But I also was working with Nina Miranda at the time, and um, and so who's who's Brazilian, and um, so I kind of met with a with a great um, uh, a great arranger and uh, composer called Dudu Falcao, um, and that was really cool. Um, you know, just meeting a lot of local people and, and jamming with them was great. Um, it was just a very it was very, very enlightening as an experience. It felt like I had my own personal renaissance, you know, by traveling in that way and and meeting so many uh, people from diverse backgrounds who had so much to say about music, but also about life experience. That's, uh, again, back to that whole uh, communication, the great communicator that it is music. And indeed, I'll put football in there as well, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, anything like that, that you don't necessarily need to speak uh, the same language. Well, there you go. I mean, that was the thing with uh, with uh, Gary Lineker recently working with him, which was, uh, which is pretty cool because he's um, he's it's interesting because I think he um, he's a very uh, deep and intelligent man. And. Uh, you know, it was it was great actually having him feature on this new album as somebody who can um, who comes from a football background but has a lot to say about um, about the way the world is. So it hits on my new album. In fact, it came out as a single just a few days ago. Oh, fantastic! Ago. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, and it's actually called Illegal. And I got him. He he very graciously uh, said that he'd come down to the studio and he recorded his voice. Uh, I wrote some words for him. He recorded his voice speaking, and then I had some women from an Asian women's uh, refuge, who are refugees, um, appearing on the track as well. Yeah, and it was great just kind of having their input alongside him speaking. And at the end, I got him to say the words, uh, no one is illegal. And it's kind of, um, you know, it was in the wake of his uh, disputes or uh, or kind of confrontation with Suella Braverman um, over uh, the treatment and um, of um, of refugees and asylum seekers. I like how Twitter, I, I was, I'm aware of that, uh, that spat, and I like how Twitter gives you an insight into people like that. And I, I love how people will express their opinions, even though it might get them in trouble with the BBC or whoever they happen to be working for. Yeah, and, um, and actually, Gary Lineker, you know, to sort of chart his, I mean, you know, he's older than me so I don't want to sound patronizing but because it's all out there with the media to chart his progression from you know young kids kicking a ball around doing well to actually becoming you know educated political opinionated and, and also statesman as well yeah, yeah exactly it it's right yeah it's really 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 wonderful to see isn't it when that when that happens. and and the thing is you know you get all these trolls and, and so on it's like it's very easy to shoot them down just by saying well how many caps have you had for England yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're, you're turning around and, and and shooting him down on the basis of patriotism you know, and it's kind of it, it strikes me as really funny. It's kind of it's, the, it's those times when you see these trolls coming out and saying you're not British at all. And I say, excuse me, actually, I've I've got I'm a, apparently I'm a commander of the most excellent order, the British Empire, which I wouldn't want to have after my name. It's kind of like if you're going to get in, get into a debate about that, that's why I find funny. By the way, on that on that note, it was quite it was quite amusing to me that the whole thing that happened around that because um, because a lot of people said, oh, "How come you took that? How come you took a CBE?" And it's very simple. I mean, basically, I had turned down an OBE in uh, in I think it was in two thousand either two thousand five or two thousand seven on the basis of what happened with uh, particularly what happened with uh, the war in Iraq and also. Um, 
I didn't really want the word empire after my name. But then my dad had said, well, wouldn't you take it for me for my birthday? That's a present to me because it, it's an indication of how far we've come as immigrants that you can get this, you know, and it's it's really fantastic. We've got, you know, it's it's for our whole family. And I said, um, I, sorry, I just can't do it. Now, the thing is, he passed away in 2013 and then in 2018 on his birthday, what would have been his birthday, I got sent a letter saying, uh, do you want the CB? And I thought, well, that's kind of a sign. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll take it. So then um, then I was given it on what would have been his anniversary with mum on May the 9th. And these are all just coincidences. And I kind of thought, well, you know, that there's, uh, there's, there's an indication of something there. So, so I took it for those reasons. I guess I also feel it's there's part of me that also thinks, I don't really see any white people having to justify why they take an honour. Why should an Asian person or a black person have to do that? You know, it's like it's for um, it. It's an acknowledgement of us being good at what we do. So I thought, well, you know, there isn't anything else <laughs> that really does that on on a serious, you know, national scale. Um, in France, they have they call it Night of Arts and Letters. Here, you get an honour. But I mean, it strikes me as quite. It still strikes me as funny when. People are trolling me and say, you're not British and so on. It's kind of like, what about CB? Here you go, mate. Yeah, look at this. <laughs> yeah, Have you got yeah, one of those? Yeah, I think you can also be, you can also be, you can be all of those things. You can be from here, but have origins and heritage somewhere else. You can be huh. proud of here, but also call out the injustices, not hide what we're doing wrong. Talk about that, you know, analyse the government, criticise the government. And we're incredibly lucky that we live in a place where we're able to do that. And you yeah. can absolutely be proud of getting your CBE and pick apart the government as well. It doesn't, you know, just because you have one, it doesn't mean you can't do the other. In fact, I think it it makes it more valid that you, mm. you can do that, you know, that you're you have that opinion. And it's a, be- a beautiful thing. And some people would say there are no coincidences. I mean, no, I don't know where yeah, I stand yeah. on that, but you, well, we just I, have a, know, I have a lot of them. So I don't know what you call them. I mean, I think there are patterns in the universe that kind of materialize in different ways. I, I think. I, I kind of believe in what's known as panpsychism to some degree, which is the idea that consciousness isn't everything and that the universe itself has a consciousness and, and that actually, um, you know, we're just manifestations of that temporary, temporarily in this form. But, you know, ultimately we return back to a sea of consciousness and that's kind of the way I tend to think. So when we look at coincidences, I think it's about bigger patterns, patterns that, we don't necessarily understand that emerge from the universal consciousness. We haven't touched uh, remotely on your travels because there's so many other things to do. But I'm thinking now of going back to uh, what you were saying there and uh, back to India, which is a very uh, a spiritual place, a religious yeah. place, yet also a place where life and death are very much present, much more present and accepted and talked about and then coexist exactly Mm, whereas mm. here we sort of brush that stuff under the carpet because we find it upsetting and uncomfortable and you know maybe your background from these two worlds you know enables you to to look at at, at things like we've been talking about and to uh, you know to explore those yeah I think so I mean I I quite often stay at a place called Varna which is um it's a yoga retreat in the foothills of the Himalayas in Dehradun, and um, and it's a 
brilliant place. They have Ayurvedic medicine and food there, and they also do macrobiotic food, and then they they have uh, 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 they have Ayurvedic treatments, traditional Chinese medicine, Tibetan healing. Um, they do uh, non chlorine based natural filtration systems, swimming pools, and all kinds of things. And it's in the forest, so you'll have like wildlife roaming around. It's quite an incredible experience to go there. So I love traveling there um, and find that, that I feel 10 million times better every single time I come back. I mean, you, you lose weight um, very quickly, insane speed. I mean, basically, you lose a pound a day um, every single time I've gone there. That That's what I've lost. Um, in, and it's all toxins. And, you know, because you're eating just incredible food and um, and it's just a very natural environment to be in. And you get lots of treatments which actually help you to, to lose that weight. Um, so it's kind of, you know, but in a really healthy way. So it's it feels fantastic actually going there. I was going to ask you actually, where have you felt happiest on your travels? But I'll also, I'm coming up to my last question in a sec, because I'm aware we've been speaking for an hour, but almost, but mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, uh, it's gone quickly. Um, I was going to ask you where you felt happiest on your travels. Is, is where, okay, actually before the happy, let's do the, let's do, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on your travels? Oh, what's the worst? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah I, that was in LA when I actually um, was, uh, I had food poisoning in LA and, um, and I was, uh, it was really bad food poisoning. And I remember I basically, um, I thought they were going to kind of, you know, uh, look out for, for making me feel better or whatever. But instead, I was kind of, um, it, I had a terrible experience. I had to go through all kinds of bureaucracy and, and uh, they weren't going to let me in the country. And then I had to, um, you know, I was all all during which I was being really violently sick, and then I was taken to a um, a hospital where they'd already taken everything from me. They said, "You need to give me give us your wallet. You need to give us your you know all of your documents, everything. You can't have anything on you." I was like, "That's crazy. Why?" And they just said, "We need it all. We, we don't have to tell you why. We just take it." So basically, they took everything from me. Then take me to a hospital where they said, "We can't do anything until you pay us two hundred dollars." And I said, two hundred dollars for what? And they said, to 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 look at you, to examine you. I said, this is insane. I haven't got any money on me. I mean, you could, we, I can give you my address, and you know. So so eventually, after about another hour of kind of talking this through, they agreed to do that. Then I was then I I was um, put in a room on my own in isolation for six hours. I was still being sick. There was they gave me there was no I wasn't allowed out of the room, um, and there was no sink <laughs> so I was literally just being sick and then eventually after six hours a doctor came in and said oh my god you, you you're you've been really sick I said well yeah yeah I'm not I wasn't allowed out he said that's ridiculous he said uh, so he said what what's wrong I said well I've got food poisoning and I got it from the airport and he said um, he said right he said right well you seem really dehydrated. Have you had any water? I said, no. <laughs> so I said, so he said, well, here's a load of water. You just needed to have lots of water and electrolytes. I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> Can I go now? He said, yeah. 
yeah, you can go. So, so I kind of went, went off and just went back to my hotel and just slept for, for 24 hours. Oh, my God. Is that, if that's the hospital experience, can you imagine what the prison experience is going to oh be like? God. And I think that's uh, overzealous go. US customs officers. I remember being, and I don't know if it's a colour thing or whatever, and I'm sure it's probably worse being a man than being a woman, but I remember going through Vegas once and they were like, well, what are you doing here? I was like, well, it's Vegas. Like, I've come for a couple of weeks. You know, I was with friends, but they were walking behind me and they sort of, so maybe thought I was on my own. Well, why are you here? What's, you know, and it's like, it's Vegas. I'm just here, you know, just here to party or whatever. And they can get a little bit officious. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't put in prison then? No. That was it. Actually, I had, I had, um, when I was in Japan, I went to Osaka, which was really bad as well. I mean, that was an awful experience. Basically, totally bizarre. I was kind of, um, they, they kept, I mean, I was actually supposed to stay in a hotel on my way back to the UK. And, um, and I, I'd booked a hotel in the airport itself. I didn't even have to go out anywhere. Um, and I was stopped at, at, uh, customs. I mean, and the woman wouldn't look at me. It was so rude, so rude the way they behaved. I mean, she, she wouldn't look, look me in the eye. She wouldn't speak in English. She would, she just literally was talking to someone on the phone to get them to come and arrest me. No reason at all. So they come, grab me, and I said, what are you doing? And then they marched me off to this uh, room and put me in there with no explanation. And then a while later, they put, they give me this form to fill in of what I'm doing there. And, uh, and uh, it has the most racist questions. And it's, uh, you know, um, you know, where, where are you from? Where's your father from? All kinds of stuff. And it's like, I just put not applicable across the whole thing. I was so angry and they wouldn't let me out for a bit. So, so three hours later, they did. Um, and I came out. I was so angry at that point. And, uh, the guy just said to me, um, he said, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, I'm, I'm staying in a hotel in the, in the airport. He said, where are you from? I said, from England. And he goes, uh, you don't look English. <laughs> I was like, I was like, do you, do you, do you know how racist you sound? Yeah. And he said, and his answer to that, which is the weirdest answer, was that, uh, don't you have racism in England? I said, I don't know <laughs> well, yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Am I free to go or am I under arrest? And he said, uh, he said, uh, he, he threw my form at me. He said, you didn't fill this in properly. I said, I'm not going to fill it in. Um, I'm going to walk out of here. If you want to arrest me, you can. And then we'll take out with the British Council so or the British Embassy. And... Um, and uh, he said, you're free to go. I said, thanks for your hospitality. Oh, it's, not, it's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy. But I mean, having said that, I'd always, and I still do, love Japanese culture and love Japan. I mean, I kind of, um, I loved going to Tokyo. It was an amazing experience and um, played the Blue Note there. They were so kind and really lovely to me. So, I mean, you know, you get some assholes some places and really cool people in others you know it's kind of um uh, but, uh or in the same place even sometimes so people are just people you know ultimately mm. that's the thing you realize um and they'll look for excuses and racism and ex- is an excuse yeah. to be an asshole really i mean because those people are frustrated human beings uh who aren't happy with their own lives who need to who need to scapegoat someone else for yeah, you get, problems. You get arseholes in Kent, you get arseholes in Tokyo, but you get mm-hmm. good people all over the world as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Seems like a fitting place for me to ask you my last question. My last question cool. is always about music because yeah. I think that you and I would both agree that I think uh, music and travel very much go hand in hand and it helps uh, cement a memory and, and, and time of place and travel. So 
My question is, if you had to pick one song, if I could afford to, I'd play as we were, you know, as we were leaving. But um, if you had to pick one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what is the memory? Well, actually, it would probably be one of mine, weirdly enough, because it would probably be um, Moonrise, uh, which I recorded with Sheb Mummy um, in in Paris, but also with Jose Miguel Carmona in uh, in Spain, and then with the strings recorded in Brazil in Rio, and then me recording my uh, some of the other stuff there um, for the for the track in London, and the percussion was recorded in percussion as well. So it's kind of uh, yeah, it was kind of it it was from four different countries, so it was um, it was a nice. It was a nice um, track to have created in in that way. Feels like it was a, a seminal moment in your career and development as a musician. I think so. I think that track, um, you know, like like the track Homelands on Beyond Skin, it was about. I, I think it was about feeling that I'm a citizen of the world, um, much much to the dismay of people like Theresa May, I should imagine. But I mean, you know, I am a citizen of the world. We all are, really. But it's kind of you know the, the the trick is to make us believe that we live in parochial pockets of uh, ignorance and and that's the thing so i kind of um, yeah i i i feel that and i think that music kind of epitomizes that i've got so much more i can ask you but i'm aware that i'm using all your time so thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast cool absolute pleasure thank you very much Thank you so much, Nitin Sawney. I honestly could have spoken to you for hours and hours. And thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We honestly appreciate each and every one of you. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.